Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 21 to 26. I was reading this week something that, you know, when you go into college and you're having to read things, when you take psychology and like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, anybody other than me have to read something like that? You know, there's some legitimate needs that we have. You know, food, I would highly recommend you eat. That's a good idea. Uh, Water, you need water. Your body needs hydration. You know, that would count. Uh, Interpersonal relationships, we need community. We need relationships. That's really important. And when you kind of look at the studies, when you don't have deep and meaningful relationships, you don't thrive. Uh, And instead, you actually deteriorate. Those are all good things. Those are legitimate needs. But we live in a different time. And what I'm talking about today is not so much legitimate needs that you have, so much as it is we're living in a culture that is saturated with selfishness. And when we think about what it means to follow Jesus, I can't think of anything more at odds with following Jesus and having a self-demanding spirit that everybody gives us what we want, when we want, how we want, in the time that we want, because we're due it. It doesn't fit, it just doesn't work with what Jesus revealed about what it means to really follow him. There's this passage in Luke chapter nine, I'm gonna start reading in verse 21. Let's just see what it is that the Lord wants to tell us today. It says, but he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one saying, this is Jesus, it is necessary that the son of man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. So Jesus already knows that something that's out in front of him is not going to be a pleasant experience. Now that said, he looks at people like me and you and says, you're worth it, you're worth it. But then he goes to say to them all in verse 23, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For some of your translations say you forfeit your soul. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the father and of the holy angels. The centerpiece of this passage in Luke chapter nine is this theme. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. This is accounted for in all four of the gospels. Luke's gospel actually adds a word that you do not find in the other three. Take up your cross, he said, daily. You take it up every single day. So what is he asking us to take up? I mean, you get this image of the cross, but have you ever just stopped and thought, what does it mean for me to take up a cross? And the answer is found in this. What did it mean for Jesus to take up a cross? I'm gonna unpack that for you a little bit. Cicero, in talking about crucifixion, said it was the most cruel and shameful of all punishments. Several hundred years before Jesus, the Persians were crucifying people. What it is said is that the Romans took a practice that the Persians had started and they perfected it. They had it down to an art form. Now, if you go back to the Persians, they worshiped the god Ormuz. Write that down. He's the god of the earth. And what they believed is that no criminal's blood should hit the earth because it would contaminate the space that their God lived. 
And so what the Persians would do is they would lift their victim up off of the ground to keep that from happening. James Bishop, in giving a description on what the crucifixion of Jesus would look like, described it like this. He said, the executioner would lay a crossbeam behind Jesus and would, would bring him to the ground quickly by grasping his arm and pulling him backwards. As soon as Jesus fell, the beam was fitted under the back of his neck, and on each side, soldiers would quickly kneel on the inside of his elbows. Once begun, the matter was done quickly and efficiently. After all, they had done it thousands of times. The executioner would wear an apron with pockets. He placed nails between his teeth. He had a hammer in hand. He would kneel beside the right arm. The soldier whose knee would rest on the inside of the elbow held the forearm flat to the board. And with his right hand, the executioner would probe the wrist of Jesus to find the hollow spot. That is where there was no artery and there was no vein. And when he found it, he would take one of the square cut iron nails from his teeth. He would place it on that spot. He would raise the hammer over the nail and he would bring it down with a force. The executioner would then jump across the body to the other wrist. Two soldiers would grab each side of the cross beam and they would lift it up. And as they pulled, they would drag Jesus by his wrists. And when the soldiers reached the upright, the four of them began to lift the cross beam higher and higher until the feet of Jesus were up off the ground. Right now, he's literally hanging with nails through his wrists. When the crossbeam was set firmly, the executioner would reach up, set the board which listed the name of the prisoner and his crime. Then he would kneel before the cross. The two soldiers hurried to help and each one would take a leg and they would take a calf. The ritual was to nail the right foot over the left and this was probably the most difficult part of their work. If the feet were pulled downward and nailed close to the foot of the cross, the prisoner would always die very, very quickly, and they did not want that. And over the years, what the Romans had learned was they would put the nails in between the legs down at the base to drive straight through both of the legs and into the wood so that they would have extra support. That was the ritual. So I want you to see this with Jesus. I want you to see him with his arms in a V position. I want you to see pain in his wrists. I want you to see muscle cramps in his arms because this is what crucifixion was. Now to keep breathing, Jesus had to remain in constant motion because what would happen is, is they were hanging the strength in their body would start to leave and they would start to droop down. As they would droop down, they would start to asphyxiate. In other words, they would start suffocating. So to get air, what they would do is with the nails that were going through their legs and through their wrists, they would pull themselves up from it so that they could get some air. And they would take several breaths, but then because they were losing their strength, they would start to go back down and then they would start suffocating again and then they would push themselves back up 
the Romans had this down to an art form. And they wanted to inflict as much punishment as they possibly could on the person that was on the cross. Inevitably, they would get to a point where they just couldn't push anymore. They couldn't push up from their legs, and they couldn't push up with their arms. And you can imagine what it would feel like to have nails driven in between your bones and through your legs, and you having to support your weight with it. Eventually, the strength just ran out. The pain was too much. Most of them actually died by suffocation. They just couldn't get air anymore because they couldn't push anymore. But this is the cross. And in Luke chapter 9, when he says, this is what it means to follow me, is to take up your cross. This is the cross. This is it. What he didn't tell you was to take up comfort. He didn't tell you to take up ease. He said to take up a cross. A person on a cross had given up total control of their lives. They were under arrest. They were bound hand and foot. They were totally powerless to the one that was in control. Spiritually, Jesus is giving this analogy because he's saying, this is the kind of control that you're supposed to give me. This is that kind of control. There were other examples beyond Jesus. This is the way that it played out historically. What did the early Christians look like? I'm just going to give you a few examples. Some of you have heard of Nero. He was likely the Caesar when Luke was writing his uh, gospel. He was, he was a sick and mentally perverse person. He had his own mother and sister executed. He even appointed his horse to be a senator. I made a few jokes about that this week, but I'm not doing it this morning. In the 60s, he turned his paranoia onto the new Christians. He used the great fire of Rome. Historians would point out that he probably started the fire in Rome himself and then blamed it on Christians as a pretext to hunt them down and to kill them. But here's how he did it. He would impale them on poles and light them on fire to light his gardens at night so that he could see them. He, he asked even to be there when they were lit on fire so that he could hear them screaming. The early Christians knew that this is what came with being a follower of Jesus, and they saw Jesus as worth it. He's worth it. Following Nero was a guy named, named Vespasian. This, his rule starts in around 60 to 70, 69 to 70. He was the one who sent Roman troops into Jerusalem to desecrate the temple. He then killed hundreds and thousands of Jews, most of which had converted to Christianity. These were the ones that were being described in the early uh, parts of the chapters of Acts. He, he crucified thousands of Jewish Christians on crosses, Christians who would have been the first people to hear the message of Jesus dead, Jesus risen. And they said, we'll take him. But this is what waited for them under Vespasian. There was another one that came sometime later, roughly in the 90s. His name was Domitian. Most scholars would say this was the time when John wrote Revelation, roughly in the mid-90s. Domitian took persecution to an even newer level, and it was absolutely demonic. For example, he knew Christians would not bow their knee to the emperor. That was him. So he would show up, for example, in a town like Ephesus, unannounced. 
He just showed up. And then he would demand that the entire town be brought out to him and worship him publicly. And whoever didn't worship him publicly would be hauled into the Colosseum and they would be fed to the lions. He put Christians into cages. He even was known to sew them up in sacks that had wild animals in them. He was particularly vicious. I give you all this imagery to help you understand what Jesus was trying to say. That when he said to follow me means that you take up your cross daily, you deny yourself every day. Now that's asking quite a lot, don't you think? And I'll point this out, Jesus knew how to thin a crowd out. Uh, he had become wildly popular. You know, when you hear about miracles and there's like all the rage, Jesus had the miracles, he had all the rage. And all of a sudden, all these people would come up. I mean, imagine the feeding of the 5,000. Would you show up for something like that? I probably would. I probably would. And he feeds the 5,000, the fish and the bread, great lunch. Then Jesus crosses over the water. People are wondering where Jesus went. And so, as you can imagine, they find him. And then when they find him the next day, as he's there, they come up and they're like, do the party tricks that you did yesterday. Remember the fish and the bread? And he's like, that's not gonna happen today. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be a follower of mine. And they're like, that is not what I signed up for. It's not what I signed up for. And then Jesus is basically saying this, then you never signed up at all. You never signed up at all. Uh, think about this. I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, being dead to self is the condition where the mere fact that I do not get what I want does not surprise or offend me and it has no control over me. Question, does that describe you? Does that describe you? In Luke 14, Jesus looks around. He sees a great crowd following him and at this point in his ministry, the, it's catching on. His reputation, stellar. Uh, his stock is rising. For those of, who are political, his approval rating, really high. And as a great crowd gathers around him in Luke 14, they hear him teach. This is what he says to them in Luke 14, 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even yourself, your own life, you can't be my disciple. Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then look what he says in verse 33. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I want you to underline those words for those of you that are underliners. Underline it. Renounce all that you have. There's no exceptions here. There's no exceptions. And then star the word. Everything. All. Nothing can be an exception to Jesus' rule in your life. He's not allowing for that. Do you remember when he said just a little bit ago in chapter 14, you gotta hate your daddy, your mama, your sister and whatnot? Look, every New Testament scholar thinks that that's just a figure of speech, but it's a really important figure of speech for you to understand. Here's a way of kind of seeing it. Uh, any pet owners out there? Any of you have dogs? Any of you have cats? I'm sorry. Because <laughs> dogs are awesome. So do dog owners, right? Uh, we have a dog, Duke. The beast, the dark lord, that's him. Uh, now, we love that dog. I mean, he's good people. I, I love the way, Duke, it's like Duke has figured out each of my girls' personalities. He knows how to interact with each of them differently. 
Uh, and basically what he wants is to eat and hang out. That's what he wants to do. He's good people. We love that dog. He's, he's fun to be around. Now, with that kind of idea in mind, and especially as you think about your pets because you spend money on your pets, right? There's a lot of time that goes into your pets. You're committed to your pet, hopefully, <laughs> if you have one, you're committed to your pet. But compared to the intensity that I have in my commitment to Duke and the commitment that I have to my four daughters, there is no comparison. And just if you're wondering, Duke doesn't win. There is no comparison. And this is basically what the analogy that Jesus is trying to give when it comes to how you revere your family and the way that you revere him, there should be no comparison. There should be no comparison. Uh, by the way, what you see thematically, and especially in Luke's gospel, Jesus would say something like this, and this is what would follow. Many, when they heard this, walked away. Many, when they heard this, they walked away. That's why I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He said, the, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. You found your limits. I know when I will follow Jesus, and I know when I won't. See, you've got to understand the cross. You've got to understand the cross. A person on a cross, you have given up control of your life. You're under arrest. You have given it up. Bound hand and foot. Totally powerless to the will of the captor. It's just, in this case, it's not Rome. It's Jesus. Uh, let me borrow another example. Let's imagine for a second that um, I went to a great steakhouse down in Houston and I didn't even do it for me, I did it for you because I'm that kind of guy. And I get you a gift card that has $500 preloaded on it. And then I come and I find you and I say, I just wanted to give you this gift. I hope that you have a great time. And then I get a second gift card. It's to Raising Cane's. <laughs> Hardly like a steakhouse, right? But let's say that I load a hundred bucks on it, right? And then I give it to you. You have two gift cards. You have two gift cards. When it comes to what Jesus was saying about following him, neither one of those is right. Neither one of them. You're sitting there going, a $500 gift card to a steakhouse, I mean, that's amazing. How many of you would take it? All of your hands would go up. But when it comes to Jesus, the point is a little bit different because what I did with the gift card is I preloaded an amount that I was content to give you. I preloaded a limit and then I handed it to you. What Jesus is looking for from you is not a preloaded amount on a gift card. He is looking for a blank check. That's what he's looking for. See, Christianity is not about comfort. It is about a cross. And it wasn't just about his cross. He says, you deny yourself daily. You take up your cross. You follow me. In Luke 9, 59, to another person, Jesus said, follow me. But then he said this in response, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. By the way, does that sound reasonable? And then Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What was his response? Huh? 
Now, it seems extreme, doesn't it? It's like all he's trying to do is to go and bury his dead dad, but that's actually not what he was trying to do. This is probably a first century figure of speech. Basically, what the guy was saying to Jesus, Jesus says, come follow me. And he says, well, let me first go back. Let me start taking over the family business. Let me make sure that we're making a profit. Let me make sure that my family is completely taken care of first. And then once I have all of those things settled, then I'll give you what's left over. That's actually what the guy was saying. Jesus was saying, it's not the way any of this works. Even in Matthew chapter nine, you remember the story of the rich young ruler? You know, Jesus is talking with this guy, you know, and he says, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus is, you know, he's like, I observe the law. I mean, I'm, I'm religiously devoted to the law. And then Jesus kind of puts a little spin on it. And he goes, well, I mean, you've got cash. Uh, go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And what was the guy's response? I'm not gonna do that. That's crazy talk. Jesus found his limit. By the way, he also wasn't following the law. His stuff owned him. His stuff owned him. Jesus exposed him. See, this is the catch. What Jesus is saying does not fit the modern climate, does it? Consider the slogan, you do you. Let me encourage you to not do that. <laughs> Let me encourage you to not do that. And by the way, everybody has a limit on when we allow and don't allow people you doing you. You know, we would look at Hitler. Nobody would look at Hitler and go, you do you, man. Nobody would do it. And Jeremiah gives us a pretty strong warning. The heart is wicked. Don't follow it. It's not worth it. It has a voice. It's very loud to you. You need to quiet it down. Let Jesus' voice be loud. Self-denial. Self-denial in an age where it's all about me. We have a choice to make. You have so many chances in a day you have so many chances in a week to die to yourself. So many chances. Self-denial in your marriage. Self-denial with your children. Self-denial with your comfort. Self-denial when you forgive someone that has wronged you, that's what it is. You give when you forgive. I'm denying my right to get even with you. Self-denial. When Jesus was on the cross, and I hope that you see him, I hope that you see him this morning. It said that you could call the angels down to deliver you from this, and he could. And there would have been a reckoning when they showed up. But for love, he stayed. But for love, he stayed. And he denied himself. He denied himself. This is what it means to follow him. How about self-denial with your sinful desires? You have them, but you deny yourself and you kill them. That's what the cross is. That's the cross. I love what John Mark Comer says. He says, this is a lot of counting, isn't it? Count the cost, count the cost. He said, but don't just count the cost of following Jesus. You also have to count the cost of not following Jesus. You better count that cost too. And some of you have already experienced it. See, when you don't walk in fellowship with the Spirit, when you don't walk in fellowship with Jesus, you're pulling yourself away of what that, from what that relationship is meant to be, full bore. You pull yourself away from it. 
the way that scripture describes it is you no longer have the fruit of the spirit just flowing out of you, which means you're not experiencing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The more that you feed into yourself and you pull away from him, you're feeling vindictive and bitter and hateful. You're a gossiper, you're a maligner, you're a slanderer, and as Paul says, and all of their first cousins, because you gave yourself completely over to yourself. Not only does it create distance between you and Jesus who loves you, but have you ever noticed what it does to the people around you too? Self-denial, self-denial. Don't just count the cost of following Jesus. Count the cost of not following him as well. Not just the fruit of the Spirit, but even heaven. There's a cost. But this is the way that the trade works. He's completely worth it. Because all he asked you to do was to give up things that were never good to begin with. They were never meant to be your ultimate satisfaction. Never. There were good gifts, as Tim Keller says, that became ultimate things. We worshiped them. We give ourselves over to them. And they take over our life. And then everything becomes about me. Jesus says there's another way. There's another way. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.